Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to take a detour from our study in the book of Revelation today. Just uh, kind of felt led on a particular vein this morning and uh, discombobulated, but uh, it's kind of uh, tried to make a kind of a conglomeration of several studies I've done in the past, taking parts of them and putting them together, which sometimes isn't easy to do, sometimes it is, but um, hopefully there is a point to it, so anyway, put it that way. All right, Matthew 2, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and uh, read verses 1 through 12. It's a familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, obviously, and it's a passage that uh, has had some attention recently, uh, this past week. Um, but anyway, so Matthew 2, so we'll, we'll start reading with, we'll let Pastor start reading. I'll just hold out um, and go around the room. Anybody that, you know, would like to read is welcome to read, just kind of in the order that we normally do. So Matthew 2... 1 through 12. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Saying, let's When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, lest it is written by the prophet. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. And Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they, when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country uh, another way. All right. We're going to pray here in just a second, but what I want to do this morning is uh, look at this passage of Scripture because there's several things that uh, stand out to me about this. Um, uh, obviously, when you look at this passage of Scripture and you examine it against a lot of traditional thought that's commonly represented uh, in our culture, obviously there's, there's a clash. And, uh, you know, Pastor mentioned a number of things about that after the program uh, Wednesday night. But uh, there's some other things about that, anyway, that I want to touch on. And then, so I want to begin in this passage, and we're going to look at a variety of other scriptures, and then we'll get, the, the goal is to get back and finish in this passage as well, all right? So let's go ahead and pray first, and then we'll jump into this. Uh, Father, this morning, as we look at this 
passage is but kind of the idea here that we're looking at about wise men seeking Jesus. I pray that you would uh, just uh, help me to be able to present this clearly, but also, Father, that you'd help us as we look at your word to uh, be able to see um, these important truths here. And then we pray that you would uh, help us again just to be able to uh, see what your word has to say and not be, you know, uh, not filter your word through common ideas and traditions, but uh, vice versa. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, just work in each of our hearts and lives today. Help us each to be surrendered and submitted to you uh, as you desire this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Now, this story of the wise men seeking Jesus um, is uh, commonly associated with Christmas, okay? And Christmas, of course, uh, I'm using that in the sense of the, uh, the historical context of the birth of Jesus into this world, all right? Um, now, just to set the record straight, in case anybody happens to listen to this that isn't familiar with us or whatever, right? We believe that Jesus is God the Son, who has, he's eternally existed as God the Son, with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. There was a point in time when he became a man. Uh, and, and all of that, of course, is in the eternal scope of, of God's plan for this world. And it was necessary for him to do that for a number of things. One of those, of course, one of the main reasons being he had to become a man in order to become the Savior, the sacrifice that was needed so man could be re reconciled back to God, so man could be redeemed by God. God had to do something. He could, I mean, God's all-powerful and spoke the worlds into existence, but he could not just speak and sin be taken care of. Something had to be done. God had to actually, he had to do something. He had to intervene for that to be able to be the case. And there's a lot of things that should stand out about that. I mean, that, that, that should, you know, speak to us about the enormity of that whole concept, that whole idea, and the seriousness of sin, that it's not something that could just be, you know, brushed under the rug. Sin is serious, and, and God had to go to these lengths, to this extent, for sin to be taken care of so that we could have a right relationship with God. Because all sin has to be taken care of somehow or another. And through what Jesus did after he, he became a man, came to this earth, was born into the human race, and of course, grew, and then in, you know, about 30 years of age, he began his public ministry, and that, uh, if you want to say, culminating with him going to the cross, dying, fulfilling much scripture in that, and of course, raising, rising, literally bodily rising from the dead the third day, uh, and then eventually ascending back to heaven permanently, where he has been and now is at the right hand of the throne of God, in his rightful place, by the way. Um, you know, all of that is, is encompassed in this. This kind of lays the groundwork for that, that Christmas story, all right? So, um, uh, and again, you're, you're familiar with this passage of Scripture. And, and again, because of the program we had, a lot of these things 
a number of these things were kind of brought to light and so on. But let's just consider this for a second here, the scenario involved here, all right? This is, like we said, often associated with the Christmas story, but it is obvious that this did not take place. What happens here in these 12 verses of of, uh, Matthew 2 did not take place at the same time as the manger scene, the nativity scene, and, and the shepherds coming. That happened the night that Jesus was born. That, Luke chapter 2 makes that very clear. Those shepherds literally saw Jesus as a newborn babe uh, there with Mary and Joseph in that stable, that cave, whatever exactly you know, that, that situation was, but a very uh, rugged situation. And uh, they literally saw him like that. They were directed there by angels from heaven. And, you know, there's Christmas songs about that uh, and so on. Uh, And then there are, uh, you know, there's another Christmas song, that song, We Three Kings of Orion Are. By the way, it's it's a good song for the most part. I mean, if you look at the words of the song, besides the fact, you know, We Three Kings, obviously, uh, we have no idea if there were three. Uh, and I tend to think there was probably a significant group of them, or Herod probably would have just taken care of them and personally, you know, at the time that they were there and all that. Um, but, I mean, there's a number of reasons. But um, So I, I tend to lean toward the idea that, you know, Pastor talked about that there was, there's probably a significant group of these people uh, because it does talk about how there was, a, there was a big stir when they came to Jerusalem. This wasn't just some you know, little unbeknownst thing. Um, And so anyway, uh, this obviously takes place sometime after the actual, you know, nativity scene, the nativity of Christ there, the birth of Christ. And in fact, literally the grammar that's involved here in verse 1, now when Jesus was born, all right, it doesn't come across as much in, in the English here, is, but the point being is Jesus, the, the grammar makes it clear, Jesus had already been born, then these wise men came to town, all right? And, and there's other things here that, that contribute to that as well. Herod asked them how long it had been since they seen the star, right? And uh, we're not, we don't have the exact wording of their answer to him, but we deduce that it had been for some time. In fact, because Herod, you know, makes sure that he kills all all the kids two years old and under. Now, it's possible he padded that number just to be sure, Uh, but the bottom line is there obviously had been some time. Um, And so this scenario, when did this happen? Well, again, it's in the days of King the Herod, which Herod reigned there for 40-some years, so quite a while that it could have been, but it, it happened when Jesus was born or the fact that Jesus had already been born in Bethlehem, these men uh, came to Jerusalem and says that there were wise men. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that word in two different ways. Hopefully, we're going to come back to here and talk about wise men in the sense of those that really have wisdom are seeking Jesus, okay? But wise men here, uh, these, are, uh, these are not kings, they're wise men, and, and the word has to do with magi and uh, that idea. But, and, and if you trace this, not just the, the word itself, but you look at some Old Testament passages. In fact, if you would, look back at Daniel, the book of Daniel. Um, 
These are men that came from, it says, the east. Typically, when you see that term in the Bible, that's referring to the area that would be called Mesopotamia or, uh, and, and Babylon or Babylonia. Babylon was a city, but Babylonia was an area, all right? Uh, but that's the same area, all right? So that's most likely where these men were from. Uh, there is somewhat of a Persian connection with this as well. But in the Old Testament, we have a lot of evidence of these kind of men and Babylon, all right? In the book of Daniel, you're familiar with Daniel's uh, story. In fact, pastor's message last week had, had touched on some of these things about Daniel as well. But remember, Daniel was taken captive when Nebuchadnezzar had come and, and attacked Jerusalem. And Daniel, of course, wasn't the only one. There were many captives taken. But uh, in, in the historical accounts, we, we are told that they took uh, people from the royal seed back to Babylon. And Daniel is included in that group. And they were taken for specific reasons, all right? Uh, it's interesting when you look at how different world empires carried out their business, all right? You know, different ones did different, had different procedures, all right? I mean, the Assyrians, for instance, they were extremely cruel and, and, and all, but they, they would take the people when they conquered an area, they would basically take those people and send them somewhere else to live, and they would take people from other places and populate that area with them because they're trying to just erase, you know, if you want to say that, that culture, basically and kind of mix them into other things. Uh, the Babylonians didn't necessarily act that way. In fact, Daniel and others became part of the uh, group of people that advised King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, so obviously, you know, a little different mindset in how things went and were handled. But Daniel, as you know, became a very influential person in the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar, and then later his grandson Belshazzar, you know, we see him giving him his warning with the handwriting on the wall scenario and so on there. But uh, Daniel even carried on his capacity into the, into the Medo-Persian Empire after the Medes and the Persians had taken over, taken over Babylon. So Daniel was a very, my point being is Daniel was a very influential man in that culture, in that setting. God really used him, all right? Now think of this, Daniel was a Hebrew, he was a Jew, right? But he was taken from, uh, you know, Israel, and he was put against his will, perhaps you would say, but he was put and then lived basically most of his life in Babylon. And he lived to be quite old uh, because he outlived Nebuchadnezzar, we know, and he was still... Uh, he was probably pretty old by the time he speaks with Belshazzar and then the, uh, 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 you know, when he has his, his dealings with Darius there after the Medes had, had conquered Babylon and so on. Um, so he's probably pretty old, but some estimate Daniel probably lived into his 90s, which is extremely old. Um, but the Babylonian captivity, you remember, lasted 70 years, and, and Daniel outlived that, all right? 
So uh, Daniel was a, was, was a very influential figure, and he had a good testimony, right? And that cost him that, you know, he got put in the den of lions and so on, as was mentioned and, and, and all. But uh, after that, then, you know, Darius throws his accusers in there, cuts them off. But part of my point being is I believe Daniel had a lasting kind of impact on that group of men that, were, that he was associated with in Babylon and then in the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, what were those men called in the context of Daniel? Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar refers to them as his what? Basically his wise men. They were, there, there were several classifications, words given here in Daniel chapter 2. In fact, let me, that's why I had you turn here. Um, now I've got to find the verses again. Um, <laughs> Uh, boy. Yeah, I think I have it on here. But in Daniel tap, chapter 2, verse 2, for instance, all right, then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans. In other, in other contexts, these men conglomerately were referred to as wise men, all right? Um, but basically, their dealings were in very much occultic things, all right, like astrology, uh, as you think about it, and various other practices, all right. Daniel was different than them in that Daniel's wisdom came directly from God. And God, and in Daniel chapter 2, that's where Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to have to hurry here, Nebuchadnezzar saw that first dream that's recorded for us, which basically is a very, when you, when you talk about Bible prophecy, it's an extremely important dream. It's an extremely important, important passage of Scripture because it lays out a lot of framework for what is now history, partly history, but yet still prof prophetic for us even today. All right, but, but it, was, it was a great framework there for a lot of things. So very important. And, and interestingly enough, I believe partly because of Daniel's testimony, but we see in Daniel chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar himself has a great turning of his life. Ends up, now whether you could argue that he was saved or what, I'm not sure, but I would, I would think it's fair to say he was in the Old Testament context because of how he changed and the heart, the expression of his heart that you see in Daniel chapter 4, right? He said, everybody should extol the God of heaven because he is greater than all gods. And I mean, you know, what, a, what you think about that? What a change. But I, I, I think that Daniel, I mean, that, that, you know, the seven years of Nebuchadnezzar being acted like an animal was part of it. But I think Daniel's life had a, had a big bearing on that as well. Um, and that's recorded for us in the book of Daniel, all right? Um, but all this, I mean, you think about this, all right? Uh, and I kind of got a little bit ahead of myself because I was talking about the scenario here. When did this happen, all right? In, in the days after Jesus was born and the, the happening in Jerusalem and then and, and Bethlehem, they found Jesus as a young child in the house, not as a newborn in, you know, in the stable, in a manger. 
um, and so on, and you, you know that from Matthew chapter 2. Um, and Herod inquires, they told Herod that they had seen his star, right? And he inquires, when did you see that, all right? Giving the indication that they, based on what they communicated, and Herod's understanding of it is, that's when they were of the understanding as to when the child was born, all right? When they saw the star. And then, who were these men? Again, not kings, they're magi. We, we're talking about this here. Wise men, astrologers, uh, but they studied the stars, but there's far more to it than, than that in their situation here. My point being, and, and i got to cut through all this, but I think Daniel had a great impact on that group of men. Now, this is hundreds of years after Daniel, but Daniel had a, a lasting impact on that group of men so that there were a number of those people that were their attention was turned to the God of Israel and the scriptures of Israel. Now think of this, Daniel again, he was a prophet, right? He lived in Babylon and the book of Daniel was written where? In Babylon, where Daniel was. There were other Old Testament scriptures that were in Babylon with them as well. For instance, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says that he understood and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he understood from reading Jeremiah that the captivity was to be 70 years. That means he had access to Jeremiah's writings. Now, we do know in Jeremiah, he says that God told him to write a copy of it and send it to the captives in Babylon. All right? But I believe there were other, you know, I think they had access to all the old times. The Jews would have taken the scriptures with them. Um, but... Point being, there, you know, uh, Daniel had an influence on these men, and I think there was at least some of these wise men that, it, that continued on in that vein, studying the Old Testament scriptures and looking for certain things that were promised in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, um, so anyway, I didn't do it in the order I had written down here, but it doesn't matter so much, but Think about that, that background, but think about this question. How did the wise men know to make this trip? How, you know, what, how did they know about this? How did they know about a king of the Jews? And I sort of bled into that a little bit with the last few comments there, but I think there's two obvious things that are involved here, and I want to treat these separately. One is the star, and secondly is the scriptures, all right? These were men that studied the stars, all right? So obviously, that's an important aspect to them, seeing this star. Now, again, what caused or prompted them to set out on this quest? Well, again, per verse 2, it, back in Matthew chapter 2, they tell Herod what? Saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. Now, this perhaps could be taken a couple ways, but it communicates, I think, that they saw the star in the east. In other words, that's where they lived, yes, but that's where the star was when they first saw it. That's how it got their attention. And this, so, so this brings us to this point, was this a normal star? Uh, you know, that they, you know, like, they studied stars, right? 
was this a normal star? Quick answer to that is obviously not. Now, there's some argument, or I don't know if you want to call it argument, but different positions among Bible students as to whether this was actually a star that God supernaturally moved around, or was it something other than a literal star? I mean, the, the word star basically has the idea of a, a radiance, a brilliance, a light, all right? So, you know, can be argued that it wasn't really a permanent, regular star in the heaven, all right? Because, and, and think about this, there's numbers of reasons. This star moved around. This star ended up standing right over Bethlehem when they got, and pointing to the very house that they were to go to, all right? I mean, if you think about that from a so-called scientific standpoint, all right, if that happened with our sun, which is a star, or, you know, Betelgeuse, that's the other star I remember the name of there from that presentation, uh, you know, I mean, basically we'd burn up the, the place, right, <laughs> Earth. So, again, I, I fall into the group of believing this is not really a star so much as it is just, it's a supernatural presentation that God uh, put there, okay? Now, some believe it was actually the Shekinah glory, you know, God, like, like in, in Exodus and so on, the, 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 the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, so on. I don't know if that's the case or not, and I'm not going to uh, argue that one way or the other right now, but obviously the point being, this was some supernatural occurrence that got their attention, and I believe God used it to get their attention. Now, perhaps it wasn't until after they start, they got the, the star got their attention that they started studying the scriptures, but maybe they were that enough was passed down to them that they were looking for the star. I don't know. All right, there's two real uh, passages of scripture that this goes back to in the Old Testament. One is... In Numbers 23 and 24, the, the predictions of Balaam. Now, Balaam wasn't a prophet of God. In fact, he was probably more like what these men were and the guys in the days of Daniel. Probably more of a, an astrologer, a soothsayer kind of guy uh, in there. But yet, God did speak to, to Balaam and gave him some information. Remember, Balaam was hired by the king of Moab to come curse Israel. And I believe he had every intention of doing it, but God wouldn't let him do it. In fact, every time he opened his mouth, a blessing would come out to Israel instead of a curse and, you know, made Balak mad and, and that. And there are four uh, revelations, four pred predictions, prophecies, if you want to say, that Balaam uttered back in the book of Numbers in chapters 23 and 24. The, most of that has to do with Israel as a, as a people, as a nation, and the fact that God was going to watch over them. He was going to protect them. He was going to bless them. Uh, you know, that, that kind of an idea, different statements. The last one of those narrows down in on someone that would come from Israel who would be a ruler and the king of the Jews, which is why... I believe that the wise men are saying to Herod, we've seen the star of the one who's born king of the Jews. All right? Now, it's interesting, when you read the passage back in Numbers, in fact, the 
kind of the exact verses in verse 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and shall destroy all the children of Sheph. Um, and, but, so you, you, the star, all right, it's going to rise out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, the star there doesn't refer to a star in the heaven. It's talking about a person that was going to come and all, but it uses that terminology again. So I, I, I think these, now think about Balaam again. He was from that area, all right? He came to Moab to, you know, speak against Israel. God didn't let him do that, but he went, but it, the Bible tells us that he went back home back to where he was from. In fact, the place that he's specifically associated with is Pithor, which is, was a city, a settlement, on the banks of the Euphrates River in the Babylonia area. All right? So um, he goes back, and the, you know, I, he goes back, takes this information with him. Again, so I think there's... there's multiple information that these men have, but there's one place, okay, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, one place in the Old Testament that told the Jews when Messiah would come. And it's interesting that they were told by God when Messiah was going to be there. And that's, of course, in Daniel chapter 9, which again, get back to the book of Daniel. Daniel was where? In Babylon, all right? So you have, have that connection there. But Daniel prophesied the exact time that Messiah would be born in relation to other events, all right? Uh, Daniel 9, 25. It's in that, in that the, the passage there is that prophecy that's often referred to as Daniel's 70 weeks, all right? And it's a specific prophecy that God gave Daniel uh, that regards God's program, if you want to say, in dealing with the nation of Israel, all right? But in the, involved in that prophecy, and by the way, that, that chapter is something that is very relevant to the book of Revelation, all right? Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks. Um, but in, in the midst of that, there in verse 25, it talks about the Messiah, all right? In fact, the only two times that the English word Messiah occurs in the Bible is in Daniel chapter 9. Every other time that that word, the Hebrew word's used, it's translated anointed in the Bible. And it sometimes still refers to the Messiah in other places. Sometimes it refers to other things, such as Aaron being anointed and, and so on. But, but the Messiah is the anointed one of God, all right? But in Daniel chapter 9, it's translated Messiah. Uh, only place in the Bible it's translated Messiah, um, Yes, let me get there and read. Verse 24, Daniel chapter 9, if you want to look at it. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. And then there are reasons stated for these 70 weeks, by the way, here. All right? To, uh, to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision 
and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Those are, that's what's involved in this 70-week program here. And again, we don't have time to talk about all of that right now. But if you are, you keep reading there, verse 25, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment, this is a key here, to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the, what's the next word? Unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So just for sake of right now, add seven and threescore and two is how much? 62, seven and 62 is what? 69, all right? So basically in 69 weeks, Daniel is being told here from the commandment to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, which this commandment, there's, again, there's argument here by Bible students as to what exact commandment this was. I think it's probably best understood as being the commandment, the, the decree by Cyrus, the Persian king who gave a decree for the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. Both are included in his, in his decree. Some tie it into other, there's, there's three other possible ones, but most of them don't make sense. Um, and they're not really as much decrees as they are just reiterations of Cyrus's decree. Cyrus was, his decree was predicted by Isaiah the prophet. I mean, again, his decree is what in my mind makes the most sense because it's what is the focus in other scripture pointing to that decree. All right. But the bottom line is the Lord through Daniel says, you know, there's going to be 69 weeks from that decree to... The Messiah, it says. I mean, who do the Jews say they've been looking for? The Messiah. God told them through Daniel when the Messiah would be there. All right, now, keep in mind, there are some difficulties in, in look from, particularly from us in the year 2023, looking back because calendars aren't the same and, and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is, where was Daniel again? In Babylon, where were these wise men from? Babylon-ish, anyway. Uh, and, and I think, again, they understood, put together the star rising, the scepter, the king of the Jews, and Messiah, the prophecy of Messiah coming. They knew when it was. It, it's interesting to me that these Gentiles from Babylon, that area, come and they knew when the Messiah was to be here, and the Jewish leaders, it's like they have no clue. And there's a big difference why, I think, because they were looking for it, the Jewish leaders weren't. The Jewish leaders were self-absorbed in their power and what they wanted. And they had forgotten, you know, the truth that God had given them and the whole purpose that God had for their nation and so on. And... Uh, again, there's, there's a lot here and I'm trying to hurry, but so, so point being, all right, how did these men know to even go and look and where to look and so on? Well, it made sense to go to Jerusalem. That was kind of the headquarters, right, of, uh, of Israel, but they had, they had the star, this, this special revelation somehow that God, you know, a sign in the heavens that God used to get their attention, to lead them, and point them 
eventually to the exact place where they had to go. All right? And they had the Old Testament scriptures. And it seems that maybe they were better versed in the Old Testament scriptures than the Jewish leaders. They didn't realize the prophecy of Micah, though, that about Bethlehem, apparently, because they're asking Herod, where is he that's born king of the Jews, all right? And Herod had to consult the Jewish leaders at that point, and they told him, ah, well, Bethlehem, uh, you know, referring in Micah chapter 2, or 5, 2 is, is uh, referred to there. But then after leaving Herod, then the star reappears, and points the exact location where they need to go. And they find the child, Jesus, in the house with it. It's interesting there in, in Matthew 2, it doesn't even mention Joseph. It just says with his mother. But then they present to him gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And again, there's a whole lot more about these men and things that we could look at. But I'm just going to not worry about that right now. So you have the scenario, you have the star, you have the scriptures, and then what I, what I want to close with and focus on here is their service, all right? Uh, in, back in Matthew chapter 2, back in Matthew 2, um, of course, verse 7, Herod privily called the wise men, he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. When you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Yeah. Uh, and when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Uh, it, it, I may be way off on this. This is just my, my mind thinking here. But I almost wouldn't doubt it. Okay, let me word it that way. That this, again, stars, this, this bright light, all right? But when it pointed, you know, it's, I, I envisioned the idea of a scepter. Boom, pointing right there, you know? That's where. I could be wrong. But that's just my opinion. The Bible doesn't say it that way. But it did stand over where the young child was, pointed them exactly. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. Because obviously there was some point in time there where they didn't see the star because they had to go ask Herod and, and so on, right? So anyway, then verse 11, when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed in their own country another way. That's when they met Captain Mike Patch and went back on the Jolly Roger. <laughs> anyway, uh, but notice when they, find, when they find him, what do they do? They worship him. I mean, think about this. These are not just fly-by-night poor drifters or whatever. These are important guys that traveled a long way and for this reason to come and worship this one that was born king of the jews again i i think i think i think okay again i'm it's my opinion i think they understood more about this 
baby than what is actually worded in Matthew chapter 2. I think they understood this is the one who's the Messiah. This is not just a king in the average physical sense, somebody being born like to replace Herod. This is the Messiah. And there's several reasons for that, I think. If you look at the gifts that they brought, well, let me, let me back up for just a second. Let me, so they come and they worship him, all right? Now, this is interesting to me because even though they found him in humble surroundings, I mean, he wasn't in the, you know, in the stable at this point, but still, he obviously would have been in, in a very poor situation uh, and, and so on. But in spite of all of that, in spite of appearances, they knew, I believe, who he was, and they worshiped him. This is wording that would be used for something that someone they considered deity, not just a high-ranking human. This is, this, is, this is major here. And they, even though they find him in humble surroundings, they still believe he was the king and they worshipped him. Okay, And then they present him, what, three gifts, three types of gifts. It doesn't mean there was just like one of this, one of the... I mean, again, we don't know how many there were. It might have been... 10 guys had gold and 20 guys had myrrh and, you know, 30 guys had frankincense. Who knows? But the point being is they presented these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, these are not just expensive gifts, but these are significant gifts as well. In that song, The, the We Three Kings, again, there's parts of it that probably are not true, not, not good, okay? We Three Kings of Orient are... Uh, but there's a phrase in there, and I never even realized that was in the song until the other, sometime in the practice or something, I saw the phrase in one of the lines. And it says, oh, now I can't think, God and king and sacrifice. That's in, in there somewhere. I don't remember where it is in the song, but God and king and sacrifice. Um, that's interesting because... The three gifts that they brought represent those three ideas right there. They brought gold, which, of course, is throughout history, throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. That's what people brought kings. I mean, Solomon, the, the probably richest king, right? I mean, this and this always has stood out to me that, and I can't tell you the exact reference. I, I didn't look it up for this morning or whatever, but the gold that was brought to Solomon on a yearly basis was 666 talents of gold, which, besides that number being interesting, the amount is staggering. I mean, but gold, why would they bring gold to Solomon? I mean, he already has plenty of gold. Well, that's what, that's what was always presented to a king. I mean, that's what a king deserved, you know. And these men bring gold and give it to a poor baby and his mother. Again, they, they knew something more about this situation than what the, you know, the circumstances would have, would have seemed. Right? But also frankincense. Interestingly enough, frankincense was part of, by the way, the, the, the incense mixture used in the tabernacle in the temple. And it was always significant in that context of Offering to whom? To God. So, you see, they recognize him as king. They also recognize him as God. 
Again, these, these guys are far more with it than the Jewish leaders of that day. And then myrrh. Myrrh, of course, was associated with death. Myrrh was a, 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 a spice that would have been used to, not for eating, but to, for smell, for burial purposes. And when you read the account of the burial of Jesus, Nicodemus and Joseph, they wrapped him and they, they were, myrrh was used. And again, so not only they recognize him as a king and as God, but they recognize something significant about this one as well, that he was born to die. I mean, again, they may not have understood everything that we know, you know, from today, looking back and having all the Bible and that, but these men were far more tuned into that than what the Jewish leaders of that time were. And that's sad if you think about it. Because those Jewish leaders are the ones that should have known it all, so to speak. They had all the information there, but they ignored it for arguably various reasons. But they, they, they ignored it or didn't care. But these men made an incredible journey, probably at great cost to themselves, to come and seek out based on a sign that God gave them in the heavens and scriptures that they had passed down to them. It got their attention, and they sought after this one that God pointed out to them. And in that context, okay, I want to go back to that word, the wise men. I think we could say they were truly whatever, you know, Magi and astrologer and sorcerer, whatever, whatever all connotation went with that there, they truly were wise men because they responded to the information that God gave them and they sought more. All right? And three things you can see about them real quick here. They, they obviously had to study the scriptures. I mean, you know, it was more of just a, than a casual reading, they obviously had to give a time and attention to understand these things from the Old Testament scriptures that they had. They had to study, and of course, uh, we're wise if we study the scriptures and listen to them. Remember the promise in the book of Revelation, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear and do, all right? So they studied the word, and then they sought the Lord. We should seek the Lord. I mean, that should be a continual thing in our lives. Obviously, that's connected with salvation, seeking the Lord. But every day, I mean, all the time in our lives, we should be seeking the Lord, what He wants, His glory, His honor, and so on in our lives. Um, I mean, and again, you see that principle from these men here. And then thirdly, I, I think that you can see surrender on their part as well. Because, I mean, what did they do? They found him. They found the one that they had studied about and sought out. And then they did what? They fell at his feet and worshipped him. Just presented themselves to him. I mean, can you imagine what if, and I don't know if, you know, if it caught the attention of neighbors. I can't help but think something like that happening, coming into Bethlehem. It wasn't a big city. And, and all this happening at this little poor house and that, wow, you know? I mean, this would have been an interesting scenario to have been able to watch it, you know? Uh, but 
their whole thing was they just, they just fell at his feet, presented themselves. They presented gifts, but they presented themselves in worship to him. And you know what? That's, that's the most that we can give God, is give him just all that we are, surrender to him, and worship him. That's what he desires. That's, that's what we were made for, is to worship God. And so I want to challenge you. This morning, i, I got to stop. I mean, study his word. Seek him, but submit to him, worship him. That's what God desires for you, every one of us, and what we owe him, really. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, just your, your word, your goodness to us, and, and just the fact that we can... see these things in your word and be reminded again of our our duty we we thank you that you love us and lord you made a way that we could have a relationship with you through the lord jesus christ but lord i pray that you'd help us to to truly worship him to truly worship you uh, today and every day of our lives we ask these things in jesus name amen